We're in Revelation chapter 6. If you'll open your Bibles there. Revelation chapter 6. As you're making your way there today, by way of introduction, we're going to be looking at... um, we're going to be looking at the four horsemen of the apocalypse today. And, uh, and just this, this, this picture of the spiritual realm. Speaking of the spiritual realm, my, my, uh, my son Scotty had an, an interesting experience. In, in the year 2000, um, he, uh, he was cast in the movie Aaron Brockovich, filmed with Julia Roberts. He played her son Matthew. They filmed for two and a half months. And, um, and so over the course of filming... Uh, Scotty and Julia's niece, who Julia would bring with her to the set, Emma, they, they struck up a friendship. And uh, Emma's mom, Kelly, was having um, a function over at her house. It was actually a baby shower. It wasn't your typical baby shower. It was, hey, bring the family, you know, your husbands, your kids. Uh, it's going to be a big party. And uh, Julia was there in the, in the whole bit. And uh, so the day came for it. I told Brenda, I, I, I just didn't want to go. And I had a lot of stuff going on. I'm like, I don't feel like going. But Brenda went. She brought the kids. And um, when they got there to Kelly's house, she had a, um, a psychic there in the house. And she'd brought this psychic to, you know, do what psychics do. You know, I don't know, read your palm or the bumps on your head. I don't know what. But at any rate, she's there working her, her, her shtick. And my daughter, Caitlin, she hits the door. Caitlin has just spiritual discernment meter that is very active. And so Caitlin hits the door, and it's like, oop, she puts on the brakes. She's like, whoa, what's going on in here, you know? Brenda's like, it's cool, sweetie, come on in. And so they go, and there's this psychic. Now, um, they're not partaking of this, but Caitlin's eyeballing it, and pretty soon she says to Brenda, she goes, Mom, what's my aura? And uh, Brenda says, your aura is Jesus, sweetie. But it gives Brenda an opportunity to talk to her about spiritual things. And she says, listen, sweetie, you got to understand that, you know, there is a spiritual realm. It is real. And uh, in the spiritual realm, hey, listen, God operates in the spiritual realm. But Satan and his demons also operate in the spiritual realm. you got to be very careful not to get involved in the demonic aspects of of the spiritual realm. And not only that... Over and above that, Satan masquerades as an angel of light, and so you have to be very, very careful with the things that you hear, the things that, that, that you know, are told to you. You have to c- compare those to the Word of God to make sure that, you know, what you're being told is true. Um, the Apostle John said much the same thing to, to, uh, to his hearers in 1 John chapter 4. He said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into uh, the world. John goes on in chapter 4, 1 John 4, to to warn of the spirit of Antichrist. And he says, listen, this spirit's already at work in the world. And he goes on even further to say, and the day is coming when Antichrist himself is going to show up and operate in the world. Well, I tell you that by way of introduction, because here in Revelation chapter 6, that day has come. Revelation, or in Revelation 6 is the revealing of the Antichrist, him coming on the scene. So we pick it up, Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. Now, I saw, the Apostle John writes, as God has given him this vision, John physically on the island of Patmos, given the vision by God, the, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so now John describing it, he says, Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals... And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come, 
and see, and I looked, and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. And there are some who assert that what is being revealed here is, the, uh, is that this is Jesus Christ. Um, you know, hey, a white horse. I don't know if it's taken from Westerns or what, but the good guy rides a white horse, wears a white hat, and this guy rides a white horse. He's got to be a good guy. No, he's not. Satan masquerades as an angel of light. This is actually an appearance of the Antichrist. We see that he has a bow. We don't see a mention of arrows. That's significant. Um, that the Antichrist, when he first arrives on scene, he comes on as, uh, you know, uh, presents himself as a guy who's a good guy, bringing peace to the earth. Um, so he's got a bow, but he doesn't have any arrows here. He's coming as a guy who's not looking to make war. Um, but uh, certainly he is problematic. He who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. This is a crown, by the way. There are different types of crowns. The original language of that, if we were speaking of a crown that would be given to God, it would be a distinctly different word that is used. Uh, the word here kind of pertains to the crown that any mortal man might receive for some accomplishment. And so this is not a divine crown that is given to him. Another indication that this is not God. And he went out conquering and to conquer. If you've been with us as we've been going through Revelation, we've seen in Revelation chapter 4 and again in chapter 5, that uh, the scene shifted from the, the earthly focus to now the church being raptured in heaven, John being caught up into heaven, seeing the picture in the, the throne room of God. And what we see there in, in chapters 4 and 5 is that Jesus receives the title deed of the earth. See, the Bible teaches that the earth is God's creation. God created the earth uh, to enjoy fellowship and 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 unity with mankind, this, this harmonious relationship. But Satan rebelled against God, and he led a rebellion on earth. And so now the, Bible is, or the, the earth is ruled um, by Satan, who the Bible says uh, has taken men captive to do his will. But because God loves us and desires that none should perish, he sent Jesus Christ to rescue us. Uh, the Bible calls this justification. And Paul put it this way in, in uh, the book of Titus. He said, When the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs to the hope of eternal life. And so the Bible teaches that we receive this justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But God's offer of justification will not last forever. We need to keep that in mind. His offer of justification is something that by the very definition of what it is, well, there's an urgency to it. The, the prophet Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly 
pardon. See, the, the, the tricky thing about living in a fallen world is that we need to understand that the clock is ticking. Clock is ticking. You never know when your time is up. We, we, we lose sight of the fact that the Bible says very clearly that you, what is your life? It's a vapor. It's here for a little while, and then it's gone. We live our lives, most of us, totally preoccupied with rearranging the furniture on the Titanic, and we forget that the Titanic is sinking. And we need to remember this. Now, as a paramedic, I had vivid reminders of this on a regular basis, had the, the occasion, the opportunity to pronounce many people as dead. One of the, the occasions stands out vividly to me where I pronounced a man dead who had been in a car accident and he still had his coffee cup in his hand. I guarantee you, had I taken the lid off of that thing and put my finger in it, it would have still been warm. And, and you think about these things as you're pronouncing some guy de- dead there on the scene. And if you think too long about it, it really messes with your head to where you're thinking, holy geez, this guy, I mean, he just poured that cup of coffee before he left his house. Or he stopped at the gas station or whatever it was. And I guarantee you, it never crossed his mind as he was filling up his coffee cup, I will not li- live to finish this coffee cup. Before this cup of coffee has gotten cold, I will have breathed my last. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. And so we need to understand that the clock is ticking. Not only is it ticking in a practical sense, but it's also ticking in a prophetic sense. God, in his sovereign plan, has set a fixed date and time that he's going to affect the rescue of his church and he's going to execute judgment of the world. He's going to rapture his church and then he's going to pour out his wrath on an unrepentant world. And we understand that God has done this in a prophetic sense. He has set that time and Revelation chapter 6, here now, that time has come. Jesus has raptured his church. He has taken the sealed title deed of the earth and now he's breaking the seals and he's executing judgment. He's he's pouring his wrath out on an unrepentant world. And as we're going to see, as Jesus breaks these seals, as he unfolds this deed, it's going to take us from here in Revelation chapter 6 through Revelation chapter 19. As the scroll opens, the entire tribulation period unfolds, and we're going to see that there's three sets of seven that are contained here for this deed. There's the seven seals that with the breaking of each seal is going to come wrath that's poured out. Then there are seven trumpets, and with the proclamation of every trumpet, there's going to be additional wrath that's poured out. And then there's going to be seven bowls or seven bowl judgments that are going to be poured out. And again, more wrath comes with those. These three sets of seven make up the entire seven-year tribulation period. Now... It's important for us, I talk to a lot of people, when you get into revelation, you get into things of prophecy, it can be confusing, admittedly. You you come in, you go, we're studying the book of Revelation, and you think, wow, that's some heady stuff. I I just, I don't, you know, that's confusing to me. 
Um, I won't ask you for a show of hands, but many are confused by things of prophecy. So what I want to do today as we begin this judgment, I think it's healthy for us, I think it's critically important for us to be able to establish the map of the you are here. Where do we sit in the timeline of prophecy where does Revelation sit in, the, in that, you know, here's starting, here's the ending kind of thing? Where does this all fit? And so toward that end, it, turn with me to Daniel chapter 9. Go to the left. Daniel, it's in the Old Testament. Um, it's, uh, I think, to the right of Isaiah. It's like 13 or 14 books to the left of Matthew. Daniel chapter 9. What we're going to find here as we look at Daniel. Daniel is a godly man. He is uh, of the nation of Israel. Israel has disobeyed God. Uh, specifically, they did not give the land a Sabbath year's rest as God instructed. They did this for a long period of time. <clears throat> and so God caused them to be taken into captivity, um, into Babylonian captivity. And so during this time, Daniel, figuring very prominently in that, Daniel is reading the Bible. He's searching the Scriptures because God says very clearly in his word that he doesn't do anything without telling the prophets about what he's going to do. So, so God tells you up front. He prophesies up front about, you know, what he has planned. We'll look at, we'll, we'll look at that a, a little bit closer here in a minute. But basically, so what happens here is that Daniel is, is searching the scriptures, searching the prophets, trying to figure out, you know, what, you know, what's going on? What's the situation? We'll pick it up in verse 1. It says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books, that means by Scripture, and specifically he's looking at the prophet Jeremiah, um, I understand by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. We're not going to get into it, but if you're curious what he was reading, it was Jeremiah 25 verses 11 and 12. You can read about that later, but basically he's saying, okay, here we are in captivity in Babylon, and I know this was prophesied, and I want to know... Where are we at in the time frame of our captivity? So he's searching the book of Jeremiah. And so uh, he goes on to, uh, to say in verse 3, Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, what follows for the next several verses, you can skip to verse 20, but what follows is he's just praying to God, pouring his heart out to God, and he's confessing his sin. He's confessing the nation's sins and all, and he's saying, God, I'm reading your word, and and I'm just confessing my sins to you. Speak to me. Illuminate your word to me. Show me what you're doing. What's going on here prophetically? 
Well, God's going to not only answer his question about their captivity, but he's going to give him an even expanded version about what awaits them yet in the future. And he says, verse 20, Now while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord God, the Lord my God, for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people, speaking of the, the, the Jews, and for your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem, to finish the, uh, the aggression, make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So first of all, he says 70 weeks are determined. Now, here's what we need to understand. When he says 70 weeks, in Hebrew, uh, the word 70, uh, or I'm sorry, the the word weeks simply refers to a unit of seven. So, what the Jews had was a thing called sabbatic years. And and, uh, a sabbatic year is where um, the years were divided into weeks of years, and that's the idea here that each week is comprised of a week of years. So when he says 70 weeks are, con- are determined, what he's saying is 70 weeks of years are determined. For who? For your people, for the Jews, and for your holy city, for the, the, the city of Jerusalem. For what purpose are they determined? Well, he says there in verse 24 <coughs> that they're determined to finish transgressions, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Let me tell you that what these weeks are determined is to bring these things about. And you don't bring these things about by your good works, by your white-knuckling it, by you being the most religious person that you can possibly be. You bring these things about in one way and one way only, and that's through Jesus Christ. And that's what's being said here. Seventy weeks are determined for the Messiah, who's going to set everything straight, going to set the way for you to to turn to the Lord, to be forgiven of sin, and so on. So this is what's being said here. Now, when he says 70 weeks are determined, that word determined uh, means, you know, decreed, settled, marked out. It means you take it to the bank. It means... If you schedule something in your calendar, chances are you write it down in pencil because like, you know, eraser time, it turns out I don't want to go to the dentist on this day. I'm going to go to the beach on this day or whatever it is. You need the flexibility. When God says that 70 weeks are determined, what he, what he means is I wrote it in permanent ink and it's set and it's happening. Take it to the bank. Now, God does this intentionally throughout the scriptures um, 
where, where prophecy is concerned because it's one of the ways that God authenticates the message. That he authenticates his word is God tells us the end from the beginning. He said it this way through Isaiah the prophet. He said, I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. So God... He sets it out, and he says, I'm determined to do this. This is 70 weeks. This is how it's going to go down, and this is one of the ways that I authenticate that, in fact, I who speak to you am God, and this is a divine message. So he determines there's going to be 70 weeks of years that they're going to be marked out for Israel for them to receive their Messiah and to be made right with him. And so God reveals this plan to David or to Daniel, and now he gets even more specific. Notice there, uh, beginning in verse 25, he says, Know therefore <coughs> and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And so here's what uh, is being said. God lays out here his specific plan. He says, listen, there's going to be seven weeks of years until the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem comes down. And then after that command comes down, there will be 62 weeks of years that transpire, and that's when Messiah will show up. So as you consider this, you see that God says that Messiah is going to show up, but that he's going to be cut off. And the word that's used here implies execution. It says he's going to be executed, but not for himself. And that's exactly what the prophet Isaiah said. He said, but he, speaking of Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So what's, what's happening here is that God is saying to Daniel, let me give you the picture of what's going down, and you are going to have these weeks of years that go down, specifically 69 weeks of years altogether, before Messiah comes to you. Now, that's important for us, and he's going to follow that with a final one-week period, which is exactly where Revelation 6 picks up. The 40th week of Daniel, which begins in verse 27, which we'll read in just a minute. But right now, what we need to understand is that God gives this very precise authentication for this timeline to Daniel. He says in verse 25, going forth of the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. When, when God tells Daniel that this commandment is going to come, it hasn't come yet. But we look at it now as history because if you go to Nehemiah chapter 2 and you read in Nehemiah chapter 2, you will see that it happened there. And the specific date for when it happened in Nehemiah chapter 2 is March 14th, 445 B.C. That's important. 
Because that represents the seven weeks of years from the point of time that God gives this vision to Daniel. He says in seven weeks of years, in, in, in other words, in 49 years, there's going to be a command that goes out to restore and rebuild Israel. That's important. Then he says this. He says, um, from that time until Messiah the Prince, there'll be 72, seven weeks and 62 weeks. Let me put it on the screen to make it clear. Seven weeks of years is 49 years until the command comes down to rebuild Israel. 62 weeks of years after that, 130, or 434 years until the coming of the Messiah. So altogether, the prophecy was that there would be 483 years until the coming of Messiah. Now, the Babylonian calendar was 360 days. And so if you take 483 years and you multiply that by 360 days, you come up with 173,880 days. So if the clock starts ticking on the day that the command was given to restore uh, the city of Jerusalem until the, 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 the day that Jesus showed up, what, what does the 173,880 days look like? Well, the command was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. And so that means that for the prophecy about Jesus coming to be fulfilled, that he should have arrived on April 6th, 32 A.D. Did that happen? Turn to Luke chapter 19. Keep your finger here in Daniel because we're going to come back to it. You go to Luke chapter 19, and by the way, I'm going to give you this date for this event that we read about, and where does it come from? We get timing cues from Luke chapter 3 verse 1, and we also get timing cues from the day that the Passover fell. You can, you can look back in history, and there's specific dates that the, the Jews keep on when the Passover is celebrated, and so you can, you can trace it back to the exact day that this event that we're going to read about takes place. And so we'll start in verse 30 of of Luke chapter 19, but understand this is April 6th, 32 AD, and Jesus says to his disciples, go into the village opposite you, you, uh, whereas you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. Skip down to verse 35. And then they brought him, speaking of the colt, to Jesus. And they threw their own clothes over the colt, or on the colt. And they set Jesus on him. And as he went, many spread their clothes on the road. And then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives. If you've been to the Promised Land, been to the nation of Jerusalem, you know that the Mount of Olives sits up there. And you head down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley. And there on the other side is the city of Jerusalem. There's the gate through which the Messiah enters. And this is his descent coming down there. The whole multitude, verse 37, tells us uh, of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And here's what they said, verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now listen, what they are shouting, 
This phrase here, it's from Psalm 118. Let me put it on the screen for you. Here's how this psalm reads. It reads, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Maybe you've said that. Someday you wake up and you wake up. Oh, what a glorious day. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. That's cool and all, but that's not the prophetic fulfillment of Psalm 118. This that we're reading in Luke's gospel is that day. It's speaking of a very precise day. In fact, the precise day that the Lord gave to Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. The day that was prophesied that the Messiah would come. This is the day the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray. O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now this is what... His disciples are now singing, shouting, singing, praying. Verse 39, and some of the Pharisees called to him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why are they saying this? Because they know good and well that not only is Jesus being worshipped as Lord, but they know that these people are quoting a messianic psalm and that they are saying that Jesus is the Messiah. And the Pharisees don't recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and so they command Jesus to rebuke his disciples. But, verse 40, he, Jesus, answered, and he said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Now, it's interesting. Jesus, up till this point, every time he healed somebody, he would say, don't tell anybody about it. Everybody, every time somebody would say, oh, you're Jesus Christ, you're the Messiah, he'd say, don't tell anybody about it. But now, all of a sudden, This is being shouted. He's not quieting them. He's not telling them not to say it. And he tells these Pharisees, not only will he not command them not to say it, but even if they didn't say it, the rocks would cry out and say it and declare it. Why? Because this is the day the Lord has made. This is the Messiah being given. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, this happened exactly... 173,880 days from the command of Artaxerxes to, to Nehemiah to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. This happened according to Scripture. And so what we have now is we have 69 weeks of the prophecy that have been pro- fulfilled. But again, there were 70 weeks that were prophesied, right? And so we have one seven-year cycle that has not transpired For the 70 weeks back in Daniel chapter 9 that were determined, right? And and so what happens, the command was given, the 69 weeks to the coming of Messiah. That's been fulfilled, 77s. and, And so the Messiah was cut off in 32 AD. That happened. But, but what happens to that last week? That's what brings us to Revelation chapter 6. Because we go, there's the last week. Now, when Jesus came fulfilling the prophecy, entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. As I said, 69 of the 70 weeks fulfilled. What happened then was there was a, a, a cosmic pause button that was, that was pushed. 70 weeks were prophesied, 69 of which have been fulfilled. That final week is yet to come. 
So here's where we are as you, as you look at Revelation chapter 6, understanding where does this fit? It fits that Jesus came, suffered, dies, died, rose again to forgive us of our sins, Pause prophetically, now you've entered what's called the church age or, or the, the age of the Gentiles, okay? And what is that period? It's a period of God's grace and of his mercy. And, and that time period continues until the pause button is removed and that will start that 70th week. And so Revelation 6 is the starting of the 70th week, the time of the tribulation. Where do we fit? We fit in this moment of pause, in the church age, in the, in, the, in the age or in the time of the Gentiles. What is the time of the Gentiles? I recently got a, a DNA test, uh, you know, one of those family uh, history things that you can do. You know, you send in your saliva sample so they can clone you or something, you know, um, which, is, which is my conspiracy thought. What are they going to do with my, my DNA I've never wanted to do it, but, but I got two of them for Christmas. So now, you know, everybody's got my DNA now. So, um, so I just get the report back from one of them the other day. And, uh, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, you know, I'm like almost 60% um, British and Irish, which, which I knew, but top of the morning to y'all. So, um, so I'm like 60% British and Irish, and all the rest of it, I'm European. Like, you know, 99.9%, whatever. But I found that I'm less than 1% Jewish, right? It made the list, less than 1%, I'll take it, sweet, right? But that makes me a Gentile. And it makes all y'all Gentiles, most of you are Gentiles, unless you're a completed Jew here, you, you know? And so the thing, the thing about the time of the Gentiles, it's just a picture of God's incredible grace, of his mercy, of his love, of his long suffering. And it blew the disciples' mind. When the, when the Bible speaks about the mystery of God, for the disciples, for, for the Jewish followers of Christ, what was taught, not for the disciples, but for the Jewish, for, for the Jewish population, what was taught by some of the rabbis was that the only things that Gentiles were good for was to fuel the fire of heaven. And that, in fact, God made Gentiles to just fan the flames of, of or not heaven, fuel the, the fires of hell. That God made Gentiles so that he could keep, stoke the fire of hell and keep it hot. That we were just firewood is what God made us to be. And, and, and this, this thought that the Gentiles were irredeemable permeated throughout Jewish cultures. And the, the culture, so what blew the disciples' mind was when God revealed the, mystery, the, the, the mysteries of God, among which was that God loves all sinners, Jew and Gentile alike, that he has a plan to redeem us all into every nation, tongue, and tribe. And this, this absolutely blew their mind. So what we live in today is this age of grace. And, and the reason that I'm stressing that is not simply to help you understand the time frame of how everything goes, but you need to understand the heart of God and you need to understand your responsibility in this. Because I realize what I'm teaching you now in, in explaining Revelation chapter 6 to you and helping you to understand things, it's a lot of history. And there's, there's a certain aspect to where when we come to hear the teaching of the Word of God, we want application. I want application. 
I, the, the messages that resonate the most with me are those that have a lot of application. And, and we need to understand the application of these truths. And that primarily is, I live in an age of grace. You need to be thankful for God's grace, but you also need to understand that there is great responsibility that comes in this time of grace. The first responsibility that we have is that we have to recognize that God loves us, that he loves us so much he sent Christ to die for us, that God demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were at sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. And that there is there's nothing you or I can do to earn a right standing with God. We have to understand that our sins demand that somebody die and that Jesus Christ died for our sins in our place. And today you have to be able to answer the question on that time frame, understanding that I live in the age of grace, am I taking God's grace for granted? How do you take God's grace for granted? Well, when you wake up and you have a pulse and you're breathing, that's God's grace. When, when you have one more day to live, that's God's grace. When God, at any moment, the Bible teaches that he holds the molecules of everything together. When God just doesn't let go of the molecules of your body so that you just, every cell in your being just blows apart, that's grace. When you sin against God by nature and by choice and God doesn't strike you dead, that's God's grace. And you and I live in God's grace right now. And so you have to answer the question, am I somebody who has heard about God, who has an appreciation for God, but by my life and by my example, by my witness, by my own testimony, understanding that the Bible says that it's appointed for man once to die and then to face judgment. And that ain't nobody getting out alive if you were that person with a coffee cup in your hand and the paramedic came up to you on your ride home from church today and you didn't make it. And the paramedic looks at you and, you know, knock, knock, who's there? Ain't you there anymore. You're not there anymore. You're gone. And if that is you, where are you going to spend eternity? You have to deal with that. You live in an age of grace. And if you abuse that age of grace by rejecting the only one that can save you, if you died today, are you going to heaven? That's, that's the first application. Second application is this. You need to be able to prayerfully consider, am I a Christian? Am I, am I bound for heaven? But am I, am I just winking at my sin? Because what we need to understand here is that when the time frame of God's grace ends and the time of judgment begins, judgment is poured out, God's wrath is poured out, his wrath is poured out on sin. It's sin that causes the train wreck of anguish that we are about to see in Revelation chapter 6. And it's brutal. And so we need to understand it's our sin that causes that. And we need to be horrified by our sin. So with all of that in mind... Look at what Daniel says in, back in Daniel 9. We'll just read the final verse there, and then we're going to go to Revelation 6. Here's the prophecy about the Antichrist. He says, and then he, when and who? Then, after this end of this parenthesis of time, this church age of grace that we live in, at the point where God hits the play button again, 
Then, at that time, as the beginning of the final, 70, seven, or the final week of the 70 weeks prophesied, the final weeks of years, in that final seven-year period, in the period we know as the tribulation, then he, speaking of Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In other words, for seven years. But in the middle of the week, three and a half years into this covenant, he shall break or he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall uh, shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. What does that mean? It's just the paraphrased version. Listen, God's going to judge sin. And so it's going to happen that the Antichrist is going to come, and he's going to come as a man of peace. And halfway through this process, he's going to break it, and he's just going to bring terror on the people. Now with all of that as an understanding that you are here, you turn back to Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Antichrist comes on the scene. He shows up riding a white horse <coughs> carrying a bow. The white horse is symbolic. It's, it's symbolic of, of uh, that the guy comes offering peace. The guy comes into a situation, into a world in chaos, and he brokers a peace, and he basically says, I've, I've got a solution to the whole Mideast problem. I've got a solution to everybody hating Israel. We see it playing out right now in the UN, and we see the, the, the seeds of what is to come being sown right now because the whole international community has set Israel up for some very strict retribution. They want to take them back to their pre-1967 borders, which is, which is going to be devastating for them. They're not going to go do that. They're going to fight against it. There's, there's considerable uh, conflict that lies in the future, and the Antichrist is going to show up as a solution to everybody's problems, and he's going to say, I brokered a peace deal. It's a seven-year treaty. Everything's cool. And he shows up riding that right horse as a man of peace. We continue, verse verse 3. When he, speaking of Jesus, that's the first seal. When he, verse 3, opened the second seal, um, that's Jesus opening the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, come and see. Another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth And that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Red is the symbol of war, and this is what happens at the three and a half year mark. The Antichrist is going to break that treaty of peace. And notice that the writer takes the false peace from the earth. Um, Now, what was given to him here was a great sword. You might want to circle the word sword. Nearby you could write assassin's sword. It's not speaking of a large sword. It's speaking of a small sword that the, that the, the Roman soldier would keep inside his tunic. It was an assassin's sword. And the picture here is that it's speaking of the Antichrist establishing the seven-year peace treaty and then underhandedly, like an assassin, like somebody who stabs you in the back, he breaks it three and a half years into it. And he knew all along he was going to do that. And so this great war breaks out. So first comes a false peace to the earth. That's the first seal. First horseman of the apocalypse, the white horse. The second horse of the horseman of the apocalypse is the red horse. The, 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 the false peace turns into a real war. 
And now let's look at the, the third horseman. He brings the consequences of that war. What does he bring? He brings famine. Verse 5. And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius. A denarius was about a day's wages. So what he's saying is, you're going to get a quart of wheat for what you make in a day. So modern equivalent, somewhere around 200 bucks. It's going to cost you 200 bucks for a loaf of wheat bread. And three quarts of barley for a denarius. So you can make, you know, a quart of wheat is about what it takes to make a loaf of bread. So you could <coughs> translate that, or extrapolate that. Three quarts of barley, three quarts of barley bread. Barley typically at this time was dog food. And that's what he's saying is that people are going to be starving and, and like dog food. You can get three, three loaves of dog food bread kind of thing is, is the thing here. So, uh, and then he says, and do not harm the oil and the wine. So this is that, that black horse, that symbol of famine, which goes hand in hand with war. War is, it, it just carries with it. Famine is always accompanying war. And, um, and the, the interesting thing here is he says, don't touch the oil and the wine. And, and it's kind of debated what that is, but, but just very quickly hear me. Um, what, what I've heard, what I think is the best translation, is that there's going to be those people during this time of famine and trial and war, the elite are going to have their stores of fine foods. <clears throat> in fact, in truth, we already see the, the beginnings of this. I was reading in the Hollywood Reporter of all places. I was reading an article that talked about that there is a 700% increase in certain people who are buying what they call bug-out shelters, but they're buying high-end places, these extravagant locations. One hedge fund owner bought this extravagant hideaway place in New Zealand with its own airstrip, and it's, it's equipped purely to survive bombardment and war and they're stocking it up with, with extravagant food supplies. And, and this 700% increase, according to this article, includes people like Bill Gates, a list of actors, uh, politicians, sports stars, hedge fund, man, hedge fund managers that are buying these places. And, and, and if nothing else, that's just a picture that people look at our world today and they recognize we're about to hit something hard. You look at the world today, you go, man, the end is near. And, and, and you, look, you do a poll, a poll, people realize. And so this is the thing, is that the, the horseman of the apocalypse comes out, there's purported peace, then there's war, right on the heels of it, there's famine. Verse 7, and when he opened the fourth seal, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, here's number four, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come and see. And so I looked, and behold, a pale horse... And the name of him who sat on it was death, and Hades followed with him. And the power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Fourth living creature, a pale horse. That word pale, we get the word chlorine from that word pale. It speaks of the, the pasty white or the pale white complexion of death. 
And, and what we see here is that the power was given to this fourth horseman of the apocalypse to take a, a quarter of the earth, to kill a quarter of the earth. Let me put that in perspective. A quarter of the earth in modern numbers is about 1.5 billion people. Putting that in perspective, the number of people that have died in all the wars of human history is about 500 million. So it's three times the number of people that have been killed in all of warfare up until this point. And it's important to note these judgments don't just go away. This is just the beginning of judgment. They're just introducing the judgment. You have the Antichrist, you have war, you have famine, you have death, and all of these don't just come and go. This isn't a one-and-done thing. They stay, and the, the, the death continues as the book goes on till the end of the tribulation. This is a very, very horrible time. And all of that to say this as we close. Number one, where are you on the salvation scale living in this day of grace? It's appointed unto man once to die and then to face judgment. You will all stand before the Lord. You will be asked one question on the entrance exam to heaven. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you confess him as Lord? Did you cry out to him as the only one who's sufficient to cover your sin, to forgive you of your sin, to cleanse you of all unrighteousness? That's accomplished simply by saying, Lord, have mercy on me, forgive me. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess means to agree with God. You agree that you're a sinner. You agree that you need a Savior. You agree that Jesus is the Savior. And you agree to cry out to him on his terms and say, Lord, save me. Some of you need to do that today. The second thing you need to understand is that if you are a believer, saved by grace, you have to see sin how God sees it. This is... When we read about a quarter of the earth dying and that just being the beginning, that's because of sin. And when you are dabbling in your sin, when you're winking at your sin, when you are saying, grace, 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 God's a God of grace, wink, wink, me and God are good. God's saying, yeah, sin is so bad that just for starters, I'm going to kill a quarter of the people on the earth. You have to see sin for how God sees it. And thirdly and finally, if you believe this is true, if you are a child of God and you're going to heaven, have you told somebody about that? Because if you believe this is true and you ignore your unsaved neighbor, you ignore your unsaved coworker, you ignore your unsaved family or friends, then that makes you a monster. Because there is a firestorm literally coming to earth. And if you knew that, if there was a car, a truck barreling down the street and was going to smash into your neighbor's house and you had five minutes notice of it, wouldn't you run next door to tell them there is, there is something worse than a truck coming barreling for your neighbor's house. And so we have to understand what's going down and we have to take a walk with, what am I doing to tell people that there is certain judgment coming but there is a certain Savior who loves them.